We started the series last week, uh, Flow, looking at God's cadence, God's rhythm in the world and what he's up to from the beginning and, and, and trying to inform our theology, trying to inform our life choices, our discipleship by just looking at what God has always been up to. And so we began in, in the beginning, uh, in, at least our beginning, not God's beginning, but Genesis chapter 1, um, and we saw that God is in the business of bringing light out of darkness, uh, of bringing order out of chaos. Um, God is in the business of bringing friendship or fellowship out of loneliness. That is the pattern that we see from the beginning. This is the flow of God. And then we saw three very important words in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1:28, where God, where the, where the Word of God says, He blessed them. He blessed Adam and Eve. And that is at the heart of God, to bring His blessing into his people. Now, worth being reminded of, worth, as, as we do in the Lord's Supper every Sunday, kind of moving this into the middle, God is the one who blesses. God knows what blessing you need, all right? And the greatest blessing, the ultimate blessing um, is for God to form you into the image of Jesus. There is no other blessing that compares to that. That is the blessing of God, all right? Romans 8, 28, 29, to conform you into the image of Jesus, for you to have the heart of Jesus, the thoughts of Jesus, the attitudes, the behaviors, the ministries of Jesus, that is the blessing of God. Now, we often think of blessing in other terms. I have this need. I have this want. God is always driving the wants, the victories, the, the pleasure, the suffering, the hurts, the valleys, the mountains. He's driving all of that, levering, leveraging all of that in the life of the disciple to form them into the image of Jesus, the greatest blessing that any human being can have. Passion for God, compassion for people. That's the heart of Jesus. Okay. Now, so this explains a lot. God blesses us in the way that he knows we need to be blessed, all right? And this is all about kind of the flow of God. It's about um, not, a, <clears throat> not like a, a, a menu of celestial benefits that we can choose from. God, I need a little this today, a little that today. And we do pray about our needs, and we do pray about all of those kind of day-to-day -day things going on. But it is about more than that. It is about this blessing of God to form us into the image of Jesus because he's God, I'm not. He gets to have the last word, um, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That his will will be done in my life as it is in heaven. So since the beginning, God has this longing that we see for all of his people to enjoy his blessing. Then he chooses Abraham and Sarah, they are going to be conduits of his blessing. He chooses them through whom he will form a special people, all right, the people of Israel. Now, you may be thinking, why does God do this? Why would God choose one group over another? Well, that, that's not really what's happening. He's not really choosing one group over another. He is choosing one nation, one group of people who can demonstrate to all peoples what it looks like to live in friendship with God, right? That Israel will be raised up, that the rest of the world can see what it looks like for a people to live in the flow of God, in the blessing of God. That's why Isaiah is going to tell us in Isaiah 51.4 that Israel is to be a light to the nations, 
God is interested in all of the nations, Iranians, Americans, Brazilians, Chinese, all of the nations of all time. Israel was to be this, this light to the nations, and now the church is this light to the nations. Now, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, just to give you kind of a glimpse of, of what was happening with this choosing of this people. Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 10. The Lord, very important here, the Lord did not, did not set his affection on you, did not choose you, because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. This is basically saying, look, let's get this straight. God did not choose you because you were the strongest, the mightiest, the prettiest, the most talented. That's not why God made this choice. Um, he had a bigger reason for his choice. Um, and, and the reason you are special is that God chose to set his affection on you, not because of anything special that you have done. Verse 8, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out of a mighty hand, redeemed you from the land of slavery and from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. So if you want to see what the flow of God looks like, um, God invites the world to watch how he relates to Israel. And this is in the Old Testament, obviously. Um, so they're enslaved in Egypt. God sees his people in slavery and bondage. He rescues his people from Egypt. He is a rescuer God. Um, and, and we have this beautiful kind of kind of finality to this narrative, at least the, the rescue from Egypt, as, as there are the Israelites, this band of, of ex-slaves, and, and Egypt's army is coming up to pin them against the Red Sea. You know the story. You've watched Charlton Heston. God opens, God opens the waters. Israel crosses the Red Sea on dry land. They are saved. Egypt thinks, well, this is pretty cool. Let's do the same thing. They are swallowed up. God protects his people. God delivers his people. Then in Sinai, God gives them his, his word, his law. He reveals more of himself. That's what you do in a relationship. You share about yourself. That's one of the things you do. God shares with them. This is who I am, all right? Um, and this is who you are called to be. This is how you are to walk in fellowship with me and in the blessing I have for you. Then in Joshua, we have this uh, this 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 additional water narrative, um, if you will. Um, they have been wandering in the desert for 40 years because they basically were faithless. God finally says, okay, you're ready. One generation has disappeared now. We're ready to take possession of the land, the promised land, this, this place that I have prepared for you. You guys have to cross the Jordan River. How are we going to do that? What you're going to do is the priests are going to walk down, and they're going to put their feet in the waters. The waters will basically be, be um, stopped up here. We'll just kind of build up over here while you guys walk across. The priests put their feet in the water. The water stops. The people walk across, and then they begin the conquest of the land that God has given to them. They're walking in God's blessing. Centuries later... Significant drift has occurred, right? This 
what has been this exciting time, this dynamic time of walking with God, of, of experiencing God through, you know, pillar of fire and clouds and seas opening and the world's mightiest armies being swallowed up. Um, that stuff has kind of faded a bit. And there has been this drift. Israel's hearts have drifted into worshiping Yahweh still, yes, but worshiping some other regional de- deities, the Baal gods and, and Molech and all, all this other stuff as well, kind of adding that into their religion, their state religion. So they've been doing this, and there's this distance between, between them and God. There is this blockage between Israel and their God. And so we roll into 1 Kings chapter 18, and I preached a sermon on this a while back. I don't need to go over all of it again, but we have in 1 Kings 18, the evilest of evil, king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. She herself was raised uh, worshiping pagan gods, and so um, Ahab marries her, brings her to Israel, and she begins to, to kind of proliferate her pagan religion around Israel and, and basically is just blocking up this fellowship that God's people are to have with them. Their affections are now divided between the God who has rescued them and these additional gods. So to get their attention, God announces through his prophet Elijah this is chapter 17, verse 1, that there will be a long, long, long drought, um, that water will not fall on the land for years is, is what's going to happen. And that is to get their attention, to draw their hearts back to him toward the conclusion of this drought. You remember, and this again is not the point of the sermon, but it's a reference point this morning. You remember that Elijah basically says... Let's roll. Let's go. And takes on the prophets of Baal, okay? And they have this contest on Mount Carmel. And you remember um, the, the pagan priests are praying, um, are, are, are screaming, are yelling, are crying out, are begging, are cutting themselves, trying to get their God's attention that their God would light their altar on fire and nothing, absolutely nothing happens. Um, they're hoarse, they're bleeding, um, they're crying, nothing happens. Elijah steps up, prays, God engulfs his altar from the heavens, engulfs that altar in flames. Now, this is a detail in the story that's important that, that is often not, not recognized, I guess, is, is that the Baal God is, is essentially a rain God, all right? A, a fertility God. That meant rain. That meant agriculture. That meant harvest. And so basically, um, Yahweh has had the Baal God on the ropes for about three years, all right? Here's your Baal God. You're praying, not just at Mount Carmel, but all the time, where is the rain? Where is your God? And then when Baal is finally defeated on Mount Carmel, um, we have, let's pick up the story in chapter 18, verse 41. Elijah said to Ahab, king of Israel, evil king of Israel, Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink. For I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. I think there's thunder in the distance. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bowed low to the ground, and prayed with his face between his knees. This is fervent 
prayer, all right? His entire body, his entire being is being poured into this petition. Then he said to his servant, go and look toward the sea, right? Sea is over to the west. That's where the rain is going to blow in from. Go and look toward the sea. The servant went and looked, returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Now, just a a word here before we move on in the text, a word here about what faithful prayer looks like. Um, Faithful prayer looks like. First of all, Elijah believes it's going to pray, all right? I mean, it's going to rain. That's why he's like, Ahab, eat, drink, and get ready to roll back to the capital city before you get, you get waterlogged here and you can't move out of here. It's going to rain. And that's why Elijah has his umbrella and his galoshes on here, all right? He is ready for it to rain. To, to rain. At the same time, it's not like prayer is pulling some kind of magic lever. I mean, this story, even though he believes, he is faithful, he knows God is going to bless them with rain. Even though he knows that, he doesn't know exactly how this is all going to work out. There's mystery here. There's room for God to be God. Um, So faithful prayer is counting on God, um, is knowing we may not have God all figured out. Um, and, And by the way, if you ever get God figured out, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible, okay? You're not worshiping the God of the Bible. So seven times, um, going back to the text here in verse 43, seven times Elijah told his servant to go and look. Finally, <laughs> the seventh time, his servant told him, I see a little itty-bitty cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, hurry, Hurry, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb into your chariot, go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. Soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Wasn't very far from there, but it was, you know, 15 miles. The Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt, ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. So, only when the Baal God is defeated at Mount Carmel does God open the floodgates and bring rain back to the nation. Now, it is, okay, it is really easy to kind of go through the story and go, wow, cool story. Nothing to do with me, all right? Nothing to do with me and my life. Not terribly relevant. Very cool story. I mean, we don't have an evil king and an evil queen ruling. We don't have um, pagan altars. We don't have, I mean, this just doesn't seem terribly relevant to my life. But, but yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so, so, yeah, this doesn't have a lot to do with me, right? Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> When God's people worship other gods, there is always blockage in their fellowship with God, in their relationship with God. There is always spiritual drought when God's people are worshiping other gods. So if you put your faith in, if you give your affections to, this is what worship is. It is putting your faith in, it is giving your affections to. If you put your faith in, give your affections to um, your ability to control things in your world, okay? Through your money, 
through your good looks, through your winsome personality, through your expertise, through your training, if you are trying to control your world through your abilities and through what your resources, then you are blocking God because you are basically worshiping yourself. Now, you can worship other things as well, but one of the most common things we do is kind of worship ourselves, give, give our affection, our energy, and our trust in our own abilities, uh, and that is idolatry, and that blocks fellowship with God. Amen? Does that make sense? And so Jesus for example, as he's talking to his disciples about what devotion looks like, what following him looks like, um, what, 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 what him being freed up to work in your life looks like. In John chapter 14, 33, Jesus says, if you don't give up everything to follow me, you cannot be my disciple. That's a quote. You cannot be my disciple. Okay, so just as Israel couldn't take Yahweh and a little sprinkling of other gods, Jesus says, you cannot follow me and take a sprinkling of other gods and put your trust and affection in other things and still be my disciple. Jesus says, I have to come first. I have to call the shots. And no one is saying you have to live this way. Hear me on this. Um, you don't have to do this. Um, it's obvious many, many people are making the choice not to do this. Um, God does not force anyone to follow him, does not force anyone to live in a relationship with him, in blessing with him. He doesn't. And one of the things I appreciate about the Bible is the way the Bible keeps it real when it comes to these men and women of faith, all right? Um, it tells us what they are really like. It doesn't just give us this character of how unbelievably awesome they are, but it shows us both sides. So verse 19, we're going to see a little bit of this. So when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just the way you killed them. Elijah was afraid. He was afraid. Fled for his life. Went to Beersheba, a town in Judah outside of their jurisdiction, if you will, in Israel, went to Judah, left his servant there, went on into the wilderness, traveling all day, sat down under a solitary broom tree, prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. So here's Elijah. One minute, he's praying, fire is engulfing an altar, right? The next minute, he's praying, rain is showering from the heavens. So fire from heaven, rain from heaven as a result of his prayers. Amazing person of faith. Um, spiritual superman. Um, he's got it all together. I mean, when Elijah prays, things happen. This is an unbridled connection to the power of God, and then a short time later, we are reminded he's just a guy. He's just a dude. <laughs> I mean, he's got his stuff. He's got his struggles. He's got his questions. Um, he's got his, his depression. He even got his, even got his suicidal thoughts. I mean, if you had a friend that was talking like this, 
Really. I mean, if you had a friend that was talking like this, was contemplating, I, am, I want my life to end, and that is their theme, you are going to find them a therapist. You might even get them admitted to Green Lawn, okay? This is where Elijah is at. I mean, he is not in a good place. So the Bible is not selling us some bill of goods here. Elijah was a man of great faith, yes, um, but he was not always fired up and everything is going his way. Um, It just doesn't work that way. My kids, um, by the way, as we move on in the story, Claudia and David both are huge fans of angel food cake. So I can't wait to tell them about this at second service today because we have the beginning of angel food cake coming up. Start in verse 5. Elijah lay down, slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. Looked around, there beside his head was some angel food cake on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again, touched him, and said, Get up, eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. I mean, if I figure if an angel was like on Top Chef or Chopped or something, probably guaranteed winner, you know? Um, probably an excellent cook here. But Elijah, um, Elijah may be depressed. He may be done with his life. But God isn't done with his life. God is not done with him. So again, the disciple allows God to call the shots, God to set the agenda, God to have the last word. Say what you want about Elijah. Say what you want about his mood swings, but he was a man committed to God, all right? So the story, you know, there's an angle here. We could get it. We could preach a sermon on fitness in this story because you've got Elijah taking care of his body. He's he's running in this story in marathon. Basically, he is um, he's eating right. Um, he's sleeping. He's taking care of himself. But that, that's probably for another time. So verse eight, he got up, he ate and he drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came, very deserted area there, by the way. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. The Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? But Elijah replied, or Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Earlier in the chapter, if you're paying attention, earlier in the chapter, Elijah says, I am no better than my loser ancestors, right? Now, all of a sudden, he is the only righteous person in the entire nation. You know how we, how we do that sometimes. I don't know how we work that out in our heads. But again, if you're looking um, to Elijah as an example of what a life of real, honest faith looks like, great. If you're looking to Elijah as someone who's got it all figured out, um, good luck with that. By the way, by the way, he's wrong. When he concludes he is the only righteous person in Israel, he's the only one left, Left, he is wrong by 7,000% here. I mean, God is going to tell him, look, dude, I have got 7,000 
thousand faithful people who have not bowed their knees to Baal. You are not the only game in town, all right? Um, So there we have it. Let's pick it up. Verse 11. Go and stand. God is going to reveal himself in a special and intimate way to Elijah. He says, go and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. As Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. A mighty windstorm hit the mountain. I mean, branches are falling off. Um, it, it's wild. It's like a tornado, okay? Um, windstorm hits. Such, um, it was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard that whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak, went out, stood at the entrance of the cave, and a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah, hiding out in a mountain cave, waiting for God to appear, and you've heard this before. I mean, it really is, is important, I think, the message of what happens on that mountain. Because there is, there is shock and awe, right? I mean, there is the tornado or the hurricane force winds. God's not in that. There is the earthquake. Surely this is God. And the ground is shaking. Here he is. That's not God. There's an inferno. That's not God. But when there's a whisper, God is speaking. God speaks to Elijah. God speaks to us. God speaks to you. And if I can't hear his whisper, I miss out. I miss out. If I can't hear his whisper, I miss out. We live in an age, we live in a time more than, I think, any time in Christian history um, of, well, Christian worship, let's put it this way, Christian worship services, um, at least the ones that really thrive, that are really successful, um, tend tend to appeal to taste in music, right? tend to be well-scripted and really extravagant, almost Broadway-level kinds of performances, um, productions. And if we're honest, many choose to attend a particular Christian worship service um, because essentially... They like it better than another place. Now, they're not going to couch it that way. They're going to say, oh, I feel God's presence here more than another place. But essentially, if you cut through all of that, they like it better. I mean, it fits them. People kind of dress more like them, and the music kind of fits them. It it sounds more like the radio station they normally listen to and all that kind of stuff. And if you're waiting for me to slam all the other churches, well, good luck with that, because that's not what I'm about. I mean, Elijah may have had this thing that, hey, I'm the only one. Um, God corrected him on that. Um, Some believers, some groups may think they are the only ones. Um, They're just wrong, right? Um, Are you following Christ or not? That's the question. However... 
just be, the point I'm trying to make here is just because something is called a worship service doesn't mean that you or I will be able to hear the whisper of God. So, maybe God speaks to you, really speaks to you, in a megachurch. Maybe God speaks to you in a country church. Maybe God speaks to you on the subway train. Um, the question, I think, is, is this, really. Not about any particular thing that happens in a venue or how good or bad the music is or even how good or bad the preaching is. I think the question is, are you hungry to hear the voice of God? Above everything, is that what you need to hear God speak to you? And along with that, are you willing to deal with the distractions in your life, the noise in your life that may muffle the voice of God? Stephen Foster, um, great writer, writes about, about meditation, uh, individual kind of time with God. He's, he's one of the, the most widely read authors on these things. And in his book, Sanctuary of the Soul, he writes these words, which I found challenging. He said, We have noisy hearts. Sadly, our Christian worship services are of no help here. Today, for the most part, they have become one huge production in distraction. Worship meant to draw us into the presence of God has become little more than an organized way of keeping us from the presence of God. Ouch. Well, we need to come together as a body. Right, And we need to sing loud songs of grateful praise to our Lord. We need to be together. We need to make some noise together for the glory of God. Make a joyful noise, you know. But we also need to have habitual, individual time alone with God so that he can speak to us in his whisper. Now, let me say this. This is, fair, this is fair to say, I think. You may not, and I would say you will not, but I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. You may not hear the whisper of God every time you get alone for prayer and for Scripture reading or listening to a Christian song or reading poetry. You may not hear a whisper from God every time, but unless, unless I can deal with my inner noise, unless I can, can silence the chatter going on in my heart, um, I won't hear the whisper of God. I won't. So it's not every time that I, that I read my scripture, that I, get, that I spend time with God, that I hear the whisper of God, but I lay that groundwork. I prepare the soil of my heart when I get quiet with God. Verse 13, who, and this is the last one we read this morning. Um, the story kind of goes on a little bit, but I thought this was a great stopping point. And really the story of Elijah continues on, flows into the life of Elijah. But this verse, verse 13 here, um, the last one we read, a voice said, 
what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Is God asking that question this morning? I mean, is God saying, what are you doing at 6022 Preston Crest Lane? What are you doing here this morning? Are you in this place this morning because you have been hearing a lot of noise, even Christian noise, but you have maybe been missing out on the whisper of the Father? Is God inviting you to clear out distractions and listen? What are you doing here? Are you here this morning because you desperately need to hear the whisper of grace in your heart? The whisper of grace against the grinding agony of a religion based on your ability to perform. Of your ability to get things right, God is whispering to you, accept my grace. Jesus got it right. You can't. Accept it. Accept the forgiveness and the mercy that come when you understand it's, it's my love demonstrated on the cross that saves you.